someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The Gospel of our Lord. It is truly a pleasure to be with you all today. Um, yeah, last time I was here, we were just around the corner at the Masonic Temple over there, and uh, that was a love-hate relationship with the space. Really good relationship with the owners, though. I remember that, um, which was a pleasure. But, um, of course, you know, um, what stands out in my memory is just being with the, Res the Resurrection Clinton Hill congregation in that space, and then also before that at the Episcopal Church just on the street, and um, so many good memories, ways that um, I personally was changed, my family was changed um, by being with all of you who are members of that congregation, but not just that congregation, those who you have been with Resurrection Brooklyn for a long time, Sheepshead Bay, Park Slope, um, I don't know if some of you were part of some of the other congregations, Seems like so many years ago now, uh, just five years, I was just I was commenting, uh, G and I were talking earlier this morning about, about COVID and how it's just messed up our sense of time. Like, I, just, I can't tell what year I'm in anymore. <laughs> I don't know if I'm the only one, but I just, um, so much, I mean, just so much tragedy and upheaval, and um, I don't know how many times I heard the word pivot. I started to throw up in my mouth every time I heard the word pivot. <laughs> time to pivot. I'm like, ooh, all right. I'm tired of pivoting. I just, <laughs> so, um, but in any case, it is, it is good to be um, with you all this morning. I regret that my family's not here um, to worship and, and see you all and to meet so many new people in this space. Uh, my wife does send her greetings, though, and she is still in Charlotte, where we've been living now for the past five years. And she's there with our youngest, Aaron, who's five. And uh, my other two are 13. My daughter is 13 now, which is crazy to think about that. And um, she and my middle one, my, my oldest son, Preston, they were students at uh, PS11 uh, when we lived here in the neighborhood. And they have really good memories of being students there. And so, yeah, we just, we miss um, being with all of you and being a part of this, this great borough. Um, I, I hesitate to say one of, I'll say one of the greatest boroughs in New York City, because I'm from the Bronx, so I kind of had to, to, to be careful, you know, just in case any of my people from the boogie down are in the room. Although I learned this the other day, not the other day, but recently, that uh, the nickname, the boogie down, 
from, you know, my borough was actually given by someone who was from Brooklyn. So I'm like, dang, it all starts with Brooklyn. Like, what's going on? Uh, so, um, so anyway, with that, and that's fine. It's all love, and, and I appreciate it. And so uh, this morning, I have a, just a, a brief word just to share with all of you as we think about uh, that saying that I forget at this moment who said it, but um, Jesus I love, but your church I have issues with, right? I'm paraphrasing, but uh, we, we've heard this, and perhaps some of us, uh, some of you here this morning have been in that space where you felt like, okay, from what I understand about Jesus, I'm really attracted to him. There's beauty that comes out in his words, his actions that I've heard of, but the community of those who are supposed to be followers of him, uh, not so much, right? They're a little sus, as the kids say. And, and so they're, um, you know, we have some struggles with that. And so what I wanted to address this morning, uh, based off of this scripture that we've uh, heard read from our sister this morning, is just a particular challenge, I think, that the church faces today, particularly as it struggles, and struggle it must, fight it must, in a good way, right, to, um, to continue to project and reflect the love of God out into, wor- into the world and continue to invite others uh, into his arms. And that question has to be about, is, I, I think, is why does the church tend to focus so much on families? Now, I, you know, just like uh, there was, um, some of you remember uh, the, the ministry focus on the family. I don't know if in New York or New Jersey, if they still have like one of those radio stations like The Light or something like that where they've got all the contemporary Christian music on it, and then uh, you know, a couple of programs in there like Tony Evans or Jim Daly or somebody like that. But uh, Focus on the Family has been around for a long time. And their ministry, uh, I think, not just theirs, as I'll address here in a second, um, but others have left like a huge mark on the life of many congregations around this country. But, uh, but this, at, at first, when you think about families, you think, well, that's that's not a negative thing, right? Many of you here are leaders of your own families and have come from really loving and healthy families, and that's a good thing. So how could focusing on family health actually be a barrier to someone giving her life to Jesus, right? Um, in fact, suggesting anything like that, that the, you know, focusing on the family could actually deter uh, others from uh, walking into the embrace of Jesus could seem very anti-Christian and perhaps even to some anti-American. But I think therein lies the problem. When it comes to the church's commitment to the family, we're sometimes not sure where the differences between biblical family health and so-called American family values end, right? Um, where, where, does, where do those differences begin and end? So let me break it down kind of this way. Y'all remember the 80s. Many of you in here remember the 80s. And for those of you who aren't born yet, the 80s are sort of coming back. So you kind of know something about the 80s, right? The high top fade. Um, I don't think the Z Cabarici pants have come back, but um, the Jordache jeans, I don't, I don't know if those are coming back. But, uh, but the torn jeans for sure, right? That, that was back in the 80s. And now it's like a thing now again. And my daughter has a couple of pair and she's got the torn um, skorts and all that too, which is like, that's, I'm like, wow, that's the 80s. Like, it's coming back. It's amazing. 
Um, but particularly here in this city, if you were here in the 80s, you remember that um, the so-called war on drugs, um, that this, this city in particular was part of the front lines of that, right? And there were many pros and cons to that, um, some of which I will not get into right now. But also in the, the time of the, of the 80s, right, in the 80s, there were, um, you know, the, these like record-breaking numbers of young people dropping out from school. Uh, people on the streets were getting robbed, and I myself was a victim of some of that uh, in my own borough. Certainly wouldn't have happened in Brooklyn, but in the Bronx, you know, in the Bronx, that's where that stuff was happening. Uh, people were getting robbed. You know, folk getting high. Well, I see that hasn't changed, but, you know, just like, just, you know, on, on the street, right, all this kind of stuff. And so the civil leaders back then were saying that we needed to enforce family values to help the situation. And a lot of this stuff was coming from the national level. They were looking at major cities like this and others and saying, what do we do? Um, and so maybe what we need to do is to encourage the population to begin to read to their kids, right? And the literacy programs were going up. All these programs about saying, messages saying, fathers, spend time with your kids and read to your kids, right? Um, new teachings about abstinence, all that stuff was being published. All that was going out. Um, and then some of you remember the old commercial that um, it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? Right? And, you know, make sure you have your kids home by 10 o'clock. So this whole focus on safety and actually bringing people back into making sure that our young people were connected to a healthy family unit was a, was a huge deal. And all the teachers in the house, y'all know, uh, I myself uh, teach at a high school right now, and um, y'all know that when a student misbehaves, that one of the first things that enters into your mind is what, what home did this kid come from, right? You just, you, that's the first thing that you kind of think of. Um, and the home, so the home is important. Right? There are huge implications for our society based on what's going on in our families. Healthy families mean, uh, in the long run, create more stability. Not perfectly, not at all, but they create more stability for our society. And so even back then, there was this huge push on the political level, political level for family values. So my original question then. How could focusing on family health in the church be a barrier for belief in Jesus? Um, I believe many churches are well-meaning. I believe that many churches have seen a need in our society, and they've seen an opportunity to attract new people. And so, like back in the 90s and maybe even some of the early 2000s, they went full blast on family ministries. Some of you are familiar with some of the more, particularly more like suburban churches where they have a little bit more space, right, to do certain things. And we're full blast on this. However, I believe what I've seen, and maybe what many of you have seen, that focus has taken place at the expense of people with the relationship status of divorced, widowed, never married, or it's complicated. This sermon could be titled, When Family Values Hurt. As a result, the church has participated in what I would call a subtle relational apartheid. And that's a pretty strong word, right? We know what apartheid is, right? And uh, it's, it's a word that refers to how the preferential treatment 
right, of one group can hurt the other. And what I'm suggesting is that in the church, what we've seen is a preferential treatment of marrieds, especially marrieds that have kids, over our single brothers and sisters. And it's that preferential treatment that causes some to doubt the love of Jesus and even walk away from the church. But the good news is that God intends to bring healing into this area, that singles and marrieds together may have a full life with one another and connect the world to Jesus. And so there are three things what I want to point, that I want to point out to you. Surprise, surprise, preacher has three points. Okay. Uh, so nevertheless, here are the three things. Uh, we, we need to expose the lies about our relationship, right? Married and singles. We need to, to expose the lies about that relationship. We need to embrace the truth of that relationship. And then lastly, what I will try to explain and hopefully show is how we can rely on the promise for our relationship. So there are lies, there's the truth, and there's a promise for us. The lie that exists is this. You have to start a family in order to be a complete Christian, you know, a grown-up Christian. Hey, you're not really there until you got like some, yeah, at least married, definitely one and a half kids in your house. Then that's when you're like, you're, you're, man, you, you really arrived, you know, in the faith. Okay? And, um, and, and it's just sort of, you know, as we think about the words of Paul that we've heard in 1 Corinthians 12, is this sort of idea that, hey, if, if once I have my own family unit, I don't need everybody else in order to grow, right? Because I finally arrived. I've got a house. I've got a home, right? And after all, we know that, um, that all uh, healthy marriages is what really holds the community together, right? It's all the healthy marriages that really keep the community together. So only the married folk can truly help you spiritually and emotionally, psychologically and otherwise. And so then many of us are so scared about not getting married, right? Or being overwhelmed um, by not getting our parenting just right. And uh, many people, and this is, this is the other part of the, the thing that just grieves me, is that many people, once they get married, they ditch their single friends. Right? And you, if you're single, you know what this feels like. It's abandonment. Let's just call it what it is. It's abandonment. Right? I mean, did you, many of all, uh, us, we know, like, we had some really good friends when we were in college or high school or even later on in, in our years. For those of you like me, middle years or above, you know, you've got some good friends. But then once you get a partner, right, it's just, see you later. Hey, uh, your single friend's trying to call you up. You press that little, the little side button on your phone real quick, skip the call, straight to voicemail. Never mind them right now. I'm caught up in love, you know. Um, but these are people who have walked with you through thick and thin, whose shoulders you cried on, who shared meals with you, you know, walked with you across the bridge when uh, you missed the train and you had to get to work if you work in Manhattan. You know, it's just it's all these different things right? And then marriage comes, and it's friend no more, like a bad play or something, you know, friend no more. Um, and your friends are left standing there wondering, asking themselves, did our years together count for nothing? 
Do I not mean anything to you anymore? All because we were so focused on family. So we're just supposed to, you know, like, how, how do you invest in a friendship? Oh, for all my single brothers and sisters in the room, like, how do you invest in a friendship when you know that the threat of marriage might be in the future? Like, how long are we going to get to a walk with each other until my bestie finds a significant other or partner that they really want to be with and I become old news? The clock is ticking, right? According to this whole culture that the church, I believe, has been guilty of building. So we're expected just to cut our single friends loose so that we can become complete, mature people. I have to say goodbye to my single friends so that I can grow up. And then those of you who are left behind, single, believe that you were obligated somehow to just get out of the way and not express your tears. Hold it in. Don't say anything. After, way, I, I, after all, I can't stand in the way of my friend's happiness. I don't want them to feel sad about this. I don't want them to feel grief. This is their time of joy and, 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 and freedom, right? This is what they've always wanted, or at least maybe I've wanted for a few years or something like that, right? I don't want to ruin that for them. Even though I'm being left behind, it's just fine. But it's not. And so your grief gets suppressed. And you hold your tears to yourself while your closest friends just walk away and have not figured out how to include you in their lives now that they have a partner. To all my single brothers, all my single sisters, I want to say to you on behalf of the church, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that has happened to you. That was wrong. If you're married and you dropped a single friend, whether that was last week or five years ago, you need to go to your friend, make things right, acknowledge the hurt. They were probably grieving because they loved you and you loved them and a significant part of their life was lost. The Apostle Paul, who's one of the first fathers of the church, addresses this sort of elitism, this sort of preference in the church. He says that, using the, the metaphor of the body, that all members of the body are important. Verse 21, he says this, The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen. While the more honorable parts do not require the special care, so God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. In this case, we will be speaking about those who are single, right? This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If the whole body suffers, 
it, it tends to suffer because one of its members is not working well. Your whole body will suffer if you cannot see. If you have a hard time walking, right, then, uh, then your whole body is going to suffer. And we're deceived if we think that the church will be further along without our single sisters and brothers, or even those who are married without children. The church has been deceived when it promotes marriage over singlehood. It's been deceived. It, um, you know, it's a very subtle thing. And maybe, and again, I used a hard word already, right? Relational apartheid. It should make you think of sort of like a caste system in some respects, where this is marriage class, and then there's the single class. Um, and then we even do this using that word class, like a lot of churches even, even do this with their curriculum, right? We have um, a class, you know, just for, or a group that's just for the married people over here. And don't get me wrong, right? As, a per, as someone who does, who's been married for 18 years now and has like three kids, like I've got all these different questions and I need wisdom and I need to be a part of a community where, you know, around others who are struggling with particular questions in their stage of life and have those things answered. But I don't need to be completely separated right, from, um, from all my single sisters and brothers. Um, don't need that. And I'll argue for um, why that's necessary. Um, but even in the church, we do more than that. We do more than just have like Mary's over there, singles over there, that sort of deal. Um, but we appoint and hold up a married woman as a leader before a single woman. Why do we do that? We elect a family man as an officer before we elect a single brother. Why do we do that? I mean, you know, and some people would say, well, doesn't, didn't Paul say in the scriptures that an elder right, uh, ought to be a husband of one wife and a good manager of his household? Yes, he does say that. But if Paul was making leadership in the church for married men only, he would have had to exclude himself. Paul was single. <laughs> like, what, what do you do with that? Right, so couldn't a widow lead a small group? Couldn't a 50-year-old man who's never been married be an elder? We have to renew our imaginations as we think about this, rethink our biases and expose the lies about our relationships so that we can experience reconciliation in the very place where reconciliation is supposed to happen in the church. As with most uh, relationships, we have our struggles, and there's two sides to every story, right? So uh, Paul helps us see the other side because another lie that keeps uh, non-marrieds as single-class citizens is this idea that singles don't need to commit. Right? That singles don't need to commit. Hey, you're free. You have no attachments. You don't need to commit to anything. Just kind of whoop, just meander through wherever you go. Right? Drop in real quick, and then, hey, something happens, you just move on. Just keep going. Right? And this is that other thing where Paul talks about, hey, there are members of the body also can't say, hey, you don't need me. You don't need me to help you grow, so, like, I don't need to be here. Like, I'll be here for as long as I need to be here. When the wind comes through, I'm out. That's it. And some of the marrieds in the room right now, in your mind, you're saying, Amen. Right? You're like, like, wait, wait a minute, because, and, wait, and if you're like me, you're saying that maybe out of envy, because you're like, man, you know, my single friends, they have all this disposable time, right? That's what, I, at, this, at least that's how it seems, right? And so, um, yeah, you know, you got all that disposable time, you come in here and do all this church work, you know, like, I've got my full-time job, I've got my spouse to think about, I got 
you know, 2.5 kids, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, do you know what it's like dealing with these public schools, whatever? Like, you know, y'all do all the work, right, instead of me. I like to take off and just go to another continent for a whole week whenever I feel like it. You know, that'd be awesome, right, to just do that and just leave my cat with somebody else whenever I want to. There's just, that'd be, that'd be awesome if I could do that, right? Sure, I like to hang out with my friends in the East Village just like one hour after I think about it, right? You know, just like I just get up and go, like I'm done. You know, there's one comedian who was just calling like, hey, honey, you know, shall we go out to dinner? We shall. And they just leave, you know, because they don't have kids. They don't have to think about that kind of stuff. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's just so for those of us who are, who are married in here, man, we think about that and we go, oh, those were the days when I was single and had all this stuff, had all this time. And, you know, I mean, truth be told, it's the empty nesters and the, the dinks, the dual incomes in the room. Y'all are in the sweet spot. Y'all are the ones who are really in the sweet spot because um, you don't have any kids and you can trust the person that you're with, right? You know that they're committed to you. So it's like, it, it's all good. I mean, you're, in a, you're really in that sweet spot right now. Um, but really, I'll, I'll, us marrieds, we do look at, tend to look at singles with envy. Sometimes. Sometimes we do. Uh, we're able to, if you're single, to leave your job when, you know, the time is right or you feel called towards something else without having to worry about somebody else's livelihood, right? Unless you have an older parent that you're caring for, that sort of deal, right? But, oh, I've got a new, this is a new opportunity. I'm going to pick up and leave. You don't have to worry about how this is going to affect my spouse's career or you know, my kids, or my kids going to hate my guts, you know, because I'm taking them out of their school and taking them away from their friends. But that's a really good salary over there. I feel really called to it, but I got these people. What do I do about that? But if being a complete Christian, being a really mature human being, is all about getting married, then Christians are not going to provide much for a vision of singleness. And many of our churches have not done that. They have not provided a vision for singlehood. And so this leaves singles wide open for the narratives, the mental maps of our society to use their freedom for themselves. But once again, Paul speaks truth for our healing. Verse 14, chapter 12, Paul says, Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one. If the foot says, I am not a part of the body because I am not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I am not part of the body because I am not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? Then he says, if the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? If your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? That's some freaky stuff, by the way. I'm like picturing it. I'm like, Paul, whoa. Okay, but, but our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it had only one part. How strange indeed. How strange indeed. Right? It's, we get this grotesque picture of a body that seems like it come out of some Japanese anime movie or something like that, right? Just it's like weird, just freaky stuff. Um, you know, something that would appear on like some psychedelic album from the 70s, right? You just, you're like, well, what's going on here? What's Paul talking about? And it's his way of describing the lie. 
that some members of the church are necessary and others are not, that some members of the church have less honor and are not really needed by everyone else. And that's simply not true. Hey, single brothers and sisters, the church needs you. We need you. We absolutely do. Like our original readers of this text, like they were, they were struggling with this hierarchy that was around spiritual gifts. And I would venture to say that um, being married or being single is also a gift, and we must learn how to steward them. And Paul would say to us in this situation of relational apartheid that singles are just as much a gift to the church as married people. And many of you know this, right? And so I'm just right now, I'm just talking to the choir, right? I mean, but, it, but it's a good reminder, is it not? I mean, it just, uh, some of you can testify to times like, and particularly, you know, if we were to ask some of you who are married, you know, some of you could testify to times in which you felt like, man, I'm in a really tough spot, and I can't, I don't know if I can share this with my spouse right now, but my single friend I can talk to, right? That, and this person is a safe place, and this person has show, showed up for me in some difficult times um, when I needed help, um, and that's how it should be, right? And it's really a mutual thing, Marrieds and singles, loving each other, caring for each other. The church needs singles committed, not just not just to church work. And we have to correct that. Right? So that, that's where we get into where, where you know, that, that's called church abuse. You know, just like, hey, you got all this time. Come on in here and sweep the floors and serve and do this and do that. Da, 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 da. You know, all that kind of stuff. Like, everybody needs to be a part of that, not just those who are single, right? Um, but the church needs singles who are not just committed to church work, but to the church. It's people. That's the need. And that's not by accident. Because here's my second point, you're following along. The truth about our relationship, which is this. We need to remember that marries and singles ought to be committed to one another because it is what God intended. It is his design for us. And when we work against that design, when we go against the grain, we get splinters, right? It's going to hurt. He intended for us to be family. So when Jesus uh, talks about uh, love, and he talks about his, his people loving one another, there's a certain character to it. You look at John chapter 15, he says this about love. Jesus says a lot of things about love in many places. But here's one, here's one place. In uh, John chapter 15, he says, Jesus, uh, as he's praying to the Father and, and speaking to his disciples, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes. Your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. For you are my friends if you do what I command. And Jesus is saying, showing us here, what is love essentially? It is abiding, dwelling in him and in the Father. Right? It's dwelling in that love that the Son already has for the Father and that they've enjoyed for all of eternity. 
And now we get to enter into that love, which is a relational love that is eternal and divine. And we get to share in that. We get to experience that. It's a familial love. It's a sacrificial love. And we're called to be a family that will habitually, habitually, right, through practices and right, things that, that have been handed down to us, we're called to be a family that habitually receives and gives the love of the Father. Out of love we receive from the Father through the Son. We lovingly seek each other's welfare above our own as we continue to receive the love which has sought our welfare above his own. Remember the truth that being mature means being responsible, being a loving participant of God's family. Marriage is just a piece of that, just one expression of it. So is singlehood. So really us marrieds do look um, at singles sometimes with envy, but there is something that we can learn about the love of God if as married people we would give ourselves and allow our single sisters and brothers to become avenues of God's love and blessing toward us and to our family. So Jesus made the call very clear. We must love one another as Christ has loved us. That's a pretty tall order. If we've ever tried it, we know that it's pretty easy to fail at that. But there's good news for us, which I'll get to here in a second. But singles and marries have to make some sacrifice to be lovingly involved in each other's lives. We have to make room for each other. We have to change our schedules from time to time. I say, you know what, okay, you know, like this one, I mean, as important as it is for all my married folk in the house, like date nights are really good. Every now and then, I invite a single friend along, right? Now you might be like, oh, I don't want to be the third wheel and that sort of thing. Like, okay, well, you know, just two of y'all, right? Just make it four people, we hang out and, just, and it'll be great. Singles and marries have to make some sacrifice to be lovingly involved with each, in each other's lives. And uh, if we don't listen well to each other, then we'll miss each other. Um, there's a story of a single woman who was part of a congregation. And during the Christmas Eve service, I think they just, you know, in a meaningful way, were giving out you know, as, a, as you do sometimes at Christmas Eve service, people will give away certain things. Uh, and, and the gifts that they gave away were geared at families, right? It was just like, hey, take this home, and you can do this, and just you and your kids, and it'll be a great time. And, um, you know, this single sister was just like, I just felt so isolated after that. Like, this is Christmas Eve. This is where I should really feel like I'm a part of the family of God. And then, like, the practice that's given is only for the married people, and even, like, those with kids, like, what? Um, and it's easy, right, to miss that kind of stuff, but we'll, we'll miss it if we don't listen to each other, if we don't know what it's like, right, to be single in the church, or we've forgotten what that's like. So being a family may mean scaling down a certain program in order to restore others. You know, just like teenagers have to sacrifice some alone time in order to continue to bond with their families, right, to, to spend a little bit of time, at least 30 minutes at the dinner table, right, before you go into your room and plug into your Spotify and go into TikTok and all that, right? Just sort of spend, spend at least some time because you're still part of a family. Spend some time. You have to make sacrifices. You know, and some people would say, hey, well, you go, well all right, look, let's be fair. Most people were married uh, young and had, uh, had, had kids at younger ages, 
not, not that long ago, right? There's, um, you know, and very few Western churches uh, had a, a, a focus on singles, you know, up until the 1930s, right? So like, like, isn't this like a new thing? Help us out. You know, what do we do with, uh, do about all the traditional societies even that are still among us, that still make up a large part of our world? But here's my point on this. My point on this is this, is that we, we could arrive at some biblical answers at what to do to build up our relationships, singles and marrieds together. If marrieds were in equal relationships with singles, if more singles were in places of leadership, asking the questions. I, you can already see how this applies in other issues of diversity, right? It helps when you have people of different ethnicities in leadership. It helps when you have females in leadership along with men. I mean, same deal here, right? Invite singles into these places. We must all come to the same table. And this is why even here, you guys don't have segregated formation groups, right? Your formation groups meet, they're mixed. People from all different kinds of relations uh, statuses, which is great. The church's primary agenda is not family values. That's not his primary agenda. Right? We certainly should speak to it. Right? God's, God's truth speaks to, relates to all things in this world. Right? Because, it, I mean, this world was made by him. So, yeah, his truth relates to all things. But the family value, values are not the primary agenda. The church does not exist to simply build up married families. But the church exists to be the family of God. Let me say that again, because that's an important distinction. The church does not exist to build up families. The church exists to be the family. If we keep to what Christ commanded, then singles of every stage of life, married, divorced, widowed, never married, right? Um, and marrieds in all sorts of families would be built up together. And Jesus promises that his joy will fill us all and it will satisfy us. So I talked about the lies about our relationship, the truth about our relationship, but then finally, how is it that we come to actually know and experience this love and this joy that Jesus has intended for his family? How do we come to know the love and the joy that God has for us in our midst, right? What's gonna do it? Is it just gonna be sheer willpower? We just kind of kind of grit our teeth and have that can-do attitude, which can-do attitude is good, but it's like, is that all? Is that, is that the only thing that's going to be able to do it? We need a power to rely on for our relationships because there's certainly times, married and single life, when we can all be self-centered and just isolate ourselves from each other, right? Or, or, or we, can, we can have all these misconceptions, right? As I mentioned earlier, as a single friend, you might think, well, you know, I don't want to mess up my friend's happiness, where like kind of deep down, they might be like, man, I sure, I miss her, right? But I don't know what to do about it because I feel like I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to spend a lot, like 90% of my time with my new partner, you know? What do we do about that? How do we overcome these things? And then like, I didn't even get into how trauma has shaped a lot of these relationships. You know, so this, this where is, is sheer willpower going to do it? If we would experience the resurrection, not, well, that, but also the reconciliation that we need. Yes, there is the love of God, 
which is presented and made known to us at the cross. And at the cross, we know that our sins are forgiven if we put our lives into the hands of Jesus. But it's also important to know some other riches of Jesus. And, and you know, it's, it's easy to miss this because of our culture. But in the ancient Near East, the family was a big deal. In many of our traditional societies today, the family is still a big deal. Not just because of natural relations, but, catch this, because of economic dependence, right? Economic interdependence. Each member depended on the other for prosperity, like a small business, right, is how some of these family units have worked, right? There's a wealthy grandfather at the head, which, which meant that um, there was job security for the, the generations who were coming behind him, and that also meant uh, that the sons and the grandsons and the families, right, within that unit would be, would be taken care of, hopefully, um, over a period of time. And so you wanted to be in a good family so that you could prosper and be secure, especially in ancient times. And if leaders in that family were righteous, then you knew that that prosperity was locked in tight. Even when things got tough, you knew that some way, somehow, like yeah, your family, right, the, the head of your household, the head of your family, household being family, not just your apartment, right, but your whole, whole household, like that head was righteous, then even in hard times, even when there was lack, somehow you were still going to be blessed. And some of you all can testify to that today, right? How many people have said, man, if it wasn't for my praying grandmother, where would I be, right? She was the leader of your household, the matriarch, right? Um, and so uh, why Jesus's uh, followers, this is why Jesus's followers were in shock, when he said that uh, it's harder for a rich man to enter to the kingdom of heaven, right, than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Because he's thinking like, wait, you know, the, isn't this what we want? Don't we want the head of our household to be wealthy so that the rest of us get it, right, and, and, and we're secure? But here's why I mention this. We still, all of us still desire to feel secure in an insecure world. Certainly, if we didn't know about that be before, we felt it when COVID hit this place, right? And just the lack of security. What am I going to do? We want to have the fullest life possible. So we have to be embedded in a good family to feel complete and secure. Then we'll place it above everything else. We'll place that family above everything else. We will invest in that family for our own security and for the security of others. Marrieds will want the church to, um, there are many, uh, uh, you know, marrieds will stop wanting the church to just focus on marriage and, and family values and family studies, right? And, and singles will, will stop wanting the church to just drop everything else and help them uh, actualize themselves and just find their purpose, right? Um, but, but what? if we were already secure because we already belong to a blessed family. And at the head of that family is the Lord Jesus himself. What if you didn't have to secure the kingdom because the kingdom was already secured for you? Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, 
who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. He says, uh, look and rely upon what is already yours through me. This is what our Lord is telling us. Look at what I've already given to you. Look at it and rely upon it. Look around this room. This is your family. These are people that God is calling you in this, in this particular place, in this time to rely on. Look at what he's already given to you. But we take advantage of it for the sake of ourselves and for each other, right? mutually speaking, and for the life of our communities. Look upon what is already ours, the security that Jesus has given to us. The more marrieds and singles love one another, the more we will actually experience the family of God. So we are called to be a people who habitually receive and give the love of God, to not believe the lie that marrieds don't need singles and singles don't need married folk. We don't really need each other. We could just use each other for our convenience, right? But marrieds and singles are actually gifts to each other. And it's all right, as I've said earlier, to focus on the family. It's okay, but we don't stop there. We don't stop there. Let's continue to learn how to be the family of God. For that is what we are if we abide in the love of Jesus. Isn't it funny that when Jesus came into the world and established himself as our Savior, he did it as a single man? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you have shown us what true love is. That even now you are ready to hold our hearts, the weight of which is hard for us to hold many times. And then you've called us to something more, not only to deal with our own hearts, but to hold the hearts of all of our friends, regardless of their relationship status, because you've made us family. I thank you, God, that in your wisdom, in your wisdom, you have given us to each other. That even as we struggle with this question of how to relate well to each other in our different relationship statuses, that we have each other as we wrestle with this question about our relationship statuses. So, Lord, would you help us to become more vulnerable, to expose within our hearts the places in which we have lacked um, love for each other, the places where there is envy. And as we confess to each other, and as we go to one another, and if there are re relationships that need to be reconciled, God, as we do these things, would you allow us to experience your joy and make our joy complete? We thank you, God, that you have not called us to be in this alone, that during these hours, these days, these months ahead, out of which, like, we know, we don't know what's coming. Nobody knew that 2020 was coming. We have no idea what's around the corner. But God, we look around this place today. We know what has already come. Your son and our family. Help us to rely on both. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.